2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
3: You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall.
1: And I'm Melissa Metric.
3: On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice— To feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history.
1: In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments.
3: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today.
1: You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie.
3: We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome back to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. Uh, I'm Wythe Marshall, and as always, I'm joined by...
1: Hi, I'm Alyssa Metric.
3: And today we have two amazing guests we've been um, hoping to speak to for a while, whose writing I really admire, and I'm really excited to chat with them about all things kind of urban and planty and vegetal and perhaps even fungal and microbial, etc. Um, and there might be raccoons. I think they also know a little bit about raccoons. Uh, so why don't Aaron, uh, Aaron, Allison, do you? Do you all want to jump in, introduce yourselves and your project?
4: Sure. Um, I'm Aaron Chapman. I uh, my sort of nine to five job is working at the Museum of Natural History. But um, Allison, who will introduce herself in a second, and I have been wanting to work on a project together for. A long time and uh, I think we like finally found our sweet spot.
5: Yeah and my name's Allison. I'm a writer mostly about history, art, and culture but um, complementing kind of Aaron's interest in science I'm always interested in like how nature intersects with culture so it's been a fun project to bring together our interest and also just our general fascination with kind of how nature exists in New York City despite you know all the the buildings and the trains and the cars and all that stuff.
4: And I think um, you know we talked for a long time about how what what form a project might take or a collaboration might take together. And Allison has worked on some maps before, which are really cool. Um, and that was you know sort of the first stirrings of this. We thought maybe we could make a map um, of sort of both natural and you know air quotes unnatural nature in New York City. But then I ran across um, an article that was actually written by one of Allison's former colleagues at Hyperallergic that was about this app um, that explored the 72 micro seasons um, that were a part of Japanese culture. And I loved this idea of tracking time and the passage of time through the really small changes that were around you rather than a flip of the calendar. And that seemed to provide like a really interesting lens that Allison and I could work together on exploring sort of the city around
5: us and the nature around us.
3: So what is um, NYC Microseasons? Can you just give the the pitch?
5: Yeah, I, I mean, Aaron kind of started. So it's like taking this existing Japanese Microseasons traditional way of observing time, but then applying it to New York City. So. That we do have stuff that is like, you know, undeniably beautiful, like when the cherry blossoms bloom and everyone's very excited. But then we also have like that time that you notice all the aerial flotsam, like the old kites and trash bags that have somehow got caught in the trees that all the leaves falling off have revealed. So the idea of the NYC micro seasons, we started it, I think, like December solstice, uh, winter solstice 2021 and we just made it to winter solstice 2022. And every week we, with our very scientific, no, just like kind of observational look at what was happening, pick what the the specific season to observe that week was. And they range from like animals to weather to plants to kind of like strange urban phenomenon, like the, the phantasmagoric steam clouds rising from the streets and that's kind of like what the the pitch is—just a way to be more conscious of like the natural forces happening around you in this urban environment.
4: I think Allison had like a really lovely turn of phrase on that was a uh, commemorating fleeting moments of change, and I think that was really the idea behind it.
3: Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, and and I definitely. Uh... I look forward to it. So I get a lot of emails. Um, I get a lot of emails about food and agriculture. Most of them are like bulleted lists that are very dry. There's like a lot of policy uh, or just like news or, you know, um, investment in like commercial farms. Uh, but I, I look forward. I, I still think of it in that group of emails. Um, but when I see NYC Microseason has posted something, it's like, oh, let me stop and pause and enjoy, you know, in the way one enjoys a podcast or something like that. But but even usually a little bit shorter Um, You know, let me just read this this news about what season it is. To your point, the season could be raccoons or, yeah, um, trash in the the trees or uh, clouds of smoke. Um, But I think that sort of um, take on the urban environment, um, which isn't always related to food, but but sometimes is and isn't always related to plants, but very, very often is, um, is very interesting. It's very different than something we usually talk about on this show, which is sort of focused on, you know, community gardens, commercial farms, sometimes like interesting food art projects for sure. Um, but this is almost like a, a take, uh, again, it's a very philosophical kind of way of looking at the city. So I can appreciate you guys coming on and, and sort of just chatting about, um, some of the research and writing you've done. Um, yeah,
4: I, I can, I just, I thought, I think maybe like one of the things that appealed to me about doing the project is in my job, I read a lot of scientific papers and, um, there's so much great, cool science there that sometimes isn't palatable always to the a more general audience. And part of this, you know, if you go back to, and maybe you guys have had this experience to even, you know, papers that were published in journals at like the early 20th century, they're often like unafraid to use much more poetic language in describing things. And I sometimes think of this project as kind of a return to that, to embracing both the lyricism of describing science and, and the world around us, but, you know, still adhering to this kind of, we, we do a lot of pretty rigorous, you know, research and fact checking for stuff. So it's finding a balance between those things that for me is often kind of missing from um, sort of drier science stuff.
3: Yeah. And, and can I say one of my favorite examples, I was just looking at your headlines is uh, an article you published looks like uh, 26th of October 2022 golden carpet of rancid butter to describe the season uh when the ginkgo trees are are scattering the sidewalks in yellow brilliant yellow sprays as you say and i think that really um you know the idea of the smell of of the ginkgo and also the golden um the, the making the ground a different color it is striking and it is it is a sense memory and it's very accurate but it, it the language is very poetic um to your point point. and so it's it's a little more interesting than just like you've got an email in your inbox that's about like a tree you don't like, you know? So it's a very interesting <laughs> take on that seasonality and that passage of time.
1: Yeah. And also, um, what was, uh, I was reading the article of the hazardous fall. I'm going to say this wrong of Osage or how do you say uh, Osage. Osage oranges?
5: Osage. It's the same Osage. as the, um, the tribal nation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and it was so great because, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked through prospect park or, um, you know, other, Um, New York city parks. And it's like, what is this fruit? Is it edible? Can I eat it? It is so huge. Why is nobody talking about this? Like, what is this? And what happens if it hits like falls and hits my head? (laughs) So it is also kind of amazing.
5: I think that like that thought of just walking around and wondering why is this tree here? Because I think especially in New York City and a lot of cities, like every plant is either there basically because somebody decided it or they decided to ignore it. And so, like, I think that's even more, make, like, the, the fact that Osage Orange, like, I grew up in Oklahoma where they're all over the place. And so when I first saw one in New York, I was like, How is is this here? And then finding out, like, oh, they were really into planting them. Like, Frederick Law Olmsted really liked the Osage Orange tree. Uh, Anyway, I won't go on a 15-minute tangent about OSH Orange Trees. be happy to, but I already wrote it in that post. Um, What were you going to say, Erin?
4: Oh, just, I mean, almost the exact same thing. That I just, um, you know, one of the reasons that I got interested in doing a project like this is I was a a volunteer uh, for the tree count in uh, 2015 and 2016 that New York City Parks Department did. And it was so... Interesting learning about how, you know, so many street trees are actually non-native species to New York City and the kind of ins and outs of that. And um, so just to Allison's point, everything seems weirdly intentional, um, but then fringed on the sides by all of this uncontrollable nature kind of.
3: Yeah, and I mean so much of of urban planning and the discourse around urban agriculture, which um, is in tension with both like food systems, food policy, you know, planning out how to help more people gain access to more nutritious foods, um, and then urban planning, you know, how to use space in ways that are considered um, liberatory and positive for communities. Um, you know, it's it, it has this kind of utopian character of kind of top down analysis. Um, Often, e- even talking to practitioners about what they they want and hope for, but I think again something you point to is is a little bit of the randomness mixed in uh, throughout the year that we all experience, whether you're growing food or uh, growing flowers or or, or something else. Um, there's so much of the seasons that aren't planned, uh, and yet you know we do e- even without being able to name the like in the example the U.S.A. orange is a good one. Even if you don't know what it is, it's kind of you know what it is. You know if you if you passed it, um, and I just looking back again through your headlines, they're not all about plants, but so many of them are, you know, you, you have milkweed, cherry blossoms, tulips, crocuses, oaks, and maples, um, cyanobacteria, one of our favorites. We love talking about cyanobacteria. Um, and then all the animals sort of strewn throughout mulberries. Right. And so they, they give a sense to the city of having a lot of liveliness, even as you say, liveliness, that isn't the same as like, Oh, I'm going to go to central park, which I know is planned for my enjoyment. Um, so it's, it, it, yeah, it, it brings a very different dimension there.
5: Yeah, yeah, and it, I think that, like, we tried to be conscious about mixing up between, like, what we were, uh, using to, as our, like, main point of observation, like, the plant or the animal. But for sure, like, all the, the planting and how it was planned, I found to be really fascinating. And, um, you know, we only did one season on cyanobacteria, but I feel like there, I, I feel like I saw some, like, thing, some tweet that passed my eyes and I didn't register where it was from some local park explaining why the, the water in the river was green, which is something I never thought about because of like the algae. I was like, Oh yeah, of course. But then, you know, it's just those little things that you observe every day. And then I love just taking down the layers and seeing what's there.
4: And I think one thing that Alison in particular did really well that I admired was um, looking at kind of the intersection of, the built environment and nature. And, you know, like one of my favorites is the, I'm, honestly, I forget the exact name that we elaborate name that we called the season, but it was basically about how um, foliage can be fragmented based on the shadows of buildings during the fall and how that affects, you know, the timing of trees changing color. And I think that was a really um, sort of focal point that we tried to, to create this balance between not all, because there's some I, there's some really lovely blogs and local nature writing that I follow that are just sort of like, this is the nature of New York City. And I'm a huge fan of those. Um, so, but I think where we saw there to be kind of like a an open space that we could explore was this particular intersection of kind of how humans and the ways that we live intersects with the, um, the plant life and the animal life around us.
1: Yeah. That's so incredible. Like one of the things that I've also found, I don't know if this, it must affect like green things, but, um, when exhaust comes out from like dryers or from other heated areas, like air conditioners or just like heat from certain places, I'm sure that affects certain plants in the winter as well. Or even in the summer so that's so uh that's such a great observation of I never thought about that about how leaves falling changes depending on the shade from buildings because shade from buildings like no no sun can get through that so that's so interesting and also how the sun moves through the sky and in fall you know it goes more behind buildings because it's lower in the sky so that's that's great yeah.
3: And again, it's a particular way of seeing like there's, I know uh, um, a guy Cornell is getting a PhD in, in modeling how shadows affect, you know, greenhouses. And in theory, if you had different kinds of vertical farms that had some, you know, if you had mixed systems, basically, so there's like traditional glass greenhouses, and there's other wacky hybrids. If you had a farm on a roof, you have a skyscraper farm, whatever, could that those work? And how do shadows affect them in an urban setting? And it's really interesting to think that like, you its it's actually hard, it like takes lots of computer know-how to to describe this thing that we, that happens all the time. Every day, you, if you walk through Manhattan, you would see like heavy shadows at different points kind of cutting across. And yeah, to your point, Melissa, of, of course, that matters if you're a tree and you can't move and you want more or less light depending on your species and the time of year. But but broadly, it brings me to this. Um, there's a theory by an architect uh, named David Gisson who wrote a book I really like called Subnature, um, that there's all these elements that aren't planned that you actually do have to deal with as an architect or planner and, and definitely as a grower as well, in many cases. And the chapters of the book are so interesting. There are things like smog, pigeons, crowds of people. Um, and I think one is smoke. I don't think shadow is one, but shadow really should be one as well, which is this kind of element that traditionally is not, it's, it's sort of an externality that you don't really think about. Um, and for most of our jobs, most of the time it doesn't matter, but when it comes to, sure, a lot of, a lot of jobs around plants, you can imagine it mattering, um, and just in general, I think that's such an interesting idea that there's there's these these forces that are part of the lived experience of cities that just are kind of written out. Um, I, I don't know. So I, I like that a lot of NYC microseasons um, seems to bring that back into, um, into consciousness. Um, so why don't we ask some questions uh, related to food and flowers and plants, if you don't mind... Um, I'm curious, Allison, Aaron, do y'all grow anything? Do y'all plant a lot?
5: That's I, plants. I think I have uh, behind me, my hydroponic garden
1: oh, that's has,
5: has basil in it. And it's, you know, it's just one of those things you, well, my mom bought this for me, uh, <laughs> those <laughs> things you can buy at like, uh, target or something. But I do, it is, there is something satisfying, even in those three pods of basil that I'm like. They feel more special than store-bought basil for some reason, but yeah, otherwise, you know, I have the usual, uh, I, speaking of shadows, live in a, I don't have like direct sunlight, so I have resorted to snake plants and philodendrons are my, uh, plant friends. I don't know, Aaron, do you have?
4: <laughs> no, I'm, no, I ironically have sort of a black thumb of death, but I do, I, I, um, after I did the tree counting, I did really love. street trees and you know was into them so i became a street tree care captain um so i do i do have a permit to open fire hydrants in my neighborhood uh to help water street trees um sadly it is that they are phasing out the type of hydrants that my giant magic wand wrench can open um i have heard uh and from an informal source that you can one can use like the magnet from a speaker, a woofer, uh, to lift up because the tops of hydrants are magnetic. Um, so you technically need a, a wrench that like lifts the magnet and turns it. So you didn't hear it from me, but uh well, this is a pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> pro tip if you're having a block party, um Please do
3: do not get our podcast banned by the FDNY. <laughs> I feel like that's such a bad enemy to make at random. Uh.
4: I will say uh, the fire department is generally very great about if you just tell them that you want to open a fire hydrant and water some street trees, especially if you have a permit already. They're totally fine. So I just try and um, when I can uh, look after the trees in my area and in my block. Um, and I have done a little bit of invasive uh, removal every, it's been a while, but, um, it's like an inwood or, um, at Jamaica Bay wildlife refuge. So, um, there's a invasive vine called Asiatic bittersweet that, uh, is, it's, a, it's always a little weird because it, um, a lot of people who really love nature and wildlife, it, it does attract a lot of birds through its berries, so, you know, some I've been out there before with my husband and uh someone was like, Why are you cutting this down? This is food for the birds and it's like, well, oh, it's choking off a lot of native species. So um yeah, I don't grow anything at home. I have like no capacity to do that, but I enjoy the outside parts of nature.
1: I'm interested, do either of you forage in the city?
5: I have not. I feel like Aaron has was I feel like you were surprised when, when I said I ate the mulberries off the trees.
4: <laughs> I've just seen, so just like taking care of the street tree beds just, I just, like, I know, oh. I know.
5: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's probably, it's not, I think, um, you know, what is it you're not supposed to eat? Like more than two fish out of the Hudson river a year or something like that. I try to treat the foraging similarly where I'm not, I'm not eating bushels of mulberries, but I do like when you're passing below a mulberry tree to just grab a little treat there. And then um, also, you know, things not to get us uh, in trouble with any local um, institutions, but the prospect park has planted service berries like all around the lift um, ice skating and skating rink, just, those are all surface berries, which are edible. And sometimes I'm like, well, I'll just take some of these, um, which I know you're not supposed to forage in city parks though, but I, i am never taking like enough to make a pie. It's just, I think there's something, um, just fun to be reminded that there are edible plants around you that you can kind of appreciate, but I know other people are much more, you know, they, they, Know what to forage on a deeper level, and I only know like those. This is a ripe berry hanging in front of me. I don't think it's poison. Once,
3: right? Yeah, we we spoke with wild man Steve Brill in our first season about foraging mushrooms, uh, and he gives tours. And it's it, yeah, it's a whole. That's again another way of seeing that um, I am not very good. I know Melissa, you're you're much more attuned to sort of what is edible and what is yeah likely to be not so good. Um, well, I'm curious. Uh, so, in addition to um, you know growing or foraging. Um, obviously you're, you're first and foremost writers, right? So how do, how do you approach this research? Like what is the process? Um, and and I don't know, how do you come to agreement? Like you want to write about pumpkins or you want to write about, you know, cyanobacteria, right? Algae um, or fir and pine um, or sure. Okay. Plovers, raccoons, right? Some of the other uh, not, non-planty things. Um, what happens next? I mean, d- how do you sort of delimit what makes an interesting bon mot that you want to share with your audience?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a good, question that I feel like luckily our sensibilities are pretty close in terms of what's interesting and both of us though are are definitely researchers who could probably do a book's worth of research on each topic we pick so often a challenge is like how to streamline things um, but I think it's just like I try to approach things where like we just did a uh, possum romance season this week for Valentine's Day and I just the fact that like you know, you, you see a possum maybe like once a year or something. And I'm just like, what are possums up to? Uh, What's their lives like right now? And I try to approach it where it's like something you might not have thought of, but once you know that it'll be able to inform the way you see the city around you.
4: And I think when we first kind of started talking about the project together, we just brainstormed a whole list of like possible seasons that we, um, you know, sat down and just did like one liners on, you know, it's the season where the snow thaws out and you start seeing piles of dog poop. That was, a uh, uh, one we have not done. Um, uh, you know, like we had a whole list and actually, you know, there are even some that we had written, but then we, we tried to write a few in advance and then, you know, the seasons just came too fast and furious and we couldn't do them all at once. So we'll save them for the future. But, um, yeah, I think it was just sort of bouncing ideas off of one another and a lot of times not always but sometimes uh, one of us would write the main article and then the other person would write the uh, the format that we do is sort of a, a main season and then underneath that are kind of you know three bullet points that are on related topics that are just sort of a couple sentences. So sometimes we would switch off on on doing those.
3: Yeah, and it's great and it's it's also interesting cuz you link out to a lot of sources but they're they tend to be when I click on them, they're not like Wikipedia. They're like someone else who wrote like a really good explainer. Like, for example, on um preparing possum to eat, there's, you know, you link to this long form um, article that's really interesting about the history of eating small game in the United States. And it relates to sort of ideas, racialized ideas about diet um, and migration patterns. And it's it just really, was a good read, but very, very much not like, you know, some sort of short form, like, can you eat possum or not? You know, downsides, upsides, or just like even a recipe, like... Uh, you know, it's basically chicken, whatever. Um, so there's a curation aspect.
5: Yeah, and I, I think that was the Bitter Southerner was an article. And I try, I think whatever possible, we try to, like, call out places that we like to read, which they do just such great coverage of the South and Southern culture. And so I was like, yeah, I could just have this be a throwaway line about... Uh, it's a weird story that I found in the New York Times archives about this guy following a possum in New Jersey, and it turned out there was a bunch of stolen silver there. And I could have just had some joke, but maybe he thought he was going to eat some possum. And I was like, "Oh, it'd be fun to link to this bitter southerner article." So it's, I appreciate that that one um, drew attention. Yeah, and and I think that like we're we're not Wikipedia people. We're like getting those archives, find some weird stuff, <laughs> dredge it out for the world to see. Finally,
3: yeah. So we've talked about space, but actually, there's a d- dimension of time to this, right? That a lot of your work is looking at the Times archive or other news archives, and and. I'm guessing, you know, other peer-reviewed archives, institutional archives, to understand how these seasons, these micro seasons played out in the past. And then that's also interesting. So it's not just like in our awareness now being attuned to something, but it's saying people used to be more attuned to it, less attuned to it, whatever it is, it has changed. Um, Are there good examples, anything jump out from your archival research that was like, oh my God, this blew my mind?
5: I think, I I feel like Aaron, you found some good things. I'm trying to think, one that just came into my mind just because you mentioned the Osage Oranges is like we always were trying to have like you know photo of the season in some way the best we could and then an archival photo and for that one uh, I had always heard about the Dust Bowl dirt making it all the way from you know Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas to New York but I never had bothered to research that and I found this like photo in the New York Times archives of the actual dust cloud there and it was really just like you know you you know more about agriculture and farming and all that than me but this this you it's crazy just to think that that was like a time when the dirt was so loose in this area that it flew all the way to New York and then part of why they planted so many Osage orange trees was in a part to like get the you know, soil secure and act as these barriers. So it was just like kind of an interesting connection between these two things that it was like, I wonder if there's some connection there and then digging deeper and finding out there, there was a little bit.
4: Yeah. One for me that is also related to agriculture um, actually is, um, Allison had written this great piece about stop and smell the stoop roses. And so I was working on the bullet points and I just thought like, Oh, what could the archival image be? Maybe it could be a seed catalog and then i started looking for you know specifically seed catalogs that had come from new york city or the surrounding area and i found this really beautiful one with a rose on it but then inside it was like talking about the retailer who sold the seeds and it was this like six floor department store of just seeds and i it was in like you know wall street area downtown i just thought like how's strange and different and, you know there's this beautiful sort of like cross-section drawing of the department store and people milling around looking for their seeds and it just was and everyone's in like fancy dress and it was such a cool beautiful different thing than you think of when you think about the, the wall street area you know that's not <laughs> generally where we go to shop for seeds anymore i don't think so Ugh,
5: yeah no more seed emporium yeah. <laughs>
1: sad <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's so interesting because so many seed companies actually started in New York, Um, because I think I think right right with I think because of the trade that was going on.
3: Yeah, well, because marketing seeds um, was not something people did until I guess we call middle capitalism, like the nineteenth century, I think, and then when people started to market seeds um, and send them further afield um new york is was already this major commercial hub so yeah even though it wasn't you know the city itself um had wasn't sort of farmland primarily at, at that point um yeah you had the big companies here um and there is farmland of course there's great farmland in in new york beyond uh urban ag per se um but yeah i i, I think the history of seeds is something that we're really fascinated by so we should you know we're, we're always down to talk about that um and i think that relates like aaron you're were you pointing out it, i think there's a kind of like a cool bonus secret history of New York City specifically that emerges, um, which just paints like, yeah, a different portrait of the city. And I mean, every, just little things. I mean, you had a great one that summarized the history of urban agriculture here, I thought really well. And I was like, oh, what a great, you know, one page sort of summary, right? I could send anyone to be like, yeah, this is this amazing movement. You should learn all about it. Um, But even things as simple as the New York parks logo, the leaf, isn't any specific tree. Like that blew my mind. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I definitely appreciate that sort of, uh, you know, those little hidden gems, um, of things you might see every day, even if you think, you know, you know this stuff a little bit.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country.
3: Allison, did you, did you have anything you wanted to bring up? Any cool news that we should, uh, we should, you know, preview?
5: (laughs) So we did a year of the um, NYC micro seasons where we did like a weekly um, micro season. So we did like an entire turn of the, you know, the the universe and that's not how time works. Oh no, the the smarter person is gone. Uh, No, we did like an entire year of, you know, chronicling every single season, every single month. And now we're looking ahead to this year, thinking about like what seasons we missed. And so we're doing like less frequent email updates, but we're still sending out the newsletter. And we're also looking into like some print publications perhaps, but we really want to keep exploring just the idea of NYC micro seasons, whether it's like, um, you know, something people can carry around to explore and like, or maybe some sort of almanac, but yeah, we're exploring different ideas and we're definitely keeping it going in some way. And we've been excited just throughout the year to hear from people like that don't even live in New York or like they just are interested in New York or they used to live in New York. And also to discover there's like at least like an, I think a North Carolina micro seasons on Twitter. And like, I think someone just did a London micro seasons book and to realize like, there's these different places people are looking in a similar intent way at nature. And I think it'd be fun to somehow broaden our view beyond the city to collaborate, uh, to look at, you know, how nature kind of impacts us all.
3: Yeah, I love that. Different micro seasons around uh, the world. And you can, then you get like the temporal dimension in each city and you get this geographic dimension across different kinds of regions. Um, doesn't even have to be cities, right? But, um, and I imagine, you know, there's some, pieces related to, uh, certainly to food and food systems, but specifically urban agriculture in all of them. So we're, we, we're very interested in, and of course, um, we'd love to read any books you guys put out just because it'll be great material. Um, speaking of books, uh, I think you have a book, um, Allison, maybe not as directly related to, uh, you know, ducks and tulips and crocuses, but, um, why don't you, you plug your book?
5: Yeah, so um, I guess in addition to being a writer and micro-seasons forecaster, I'm also a cemetery tour guide, mostly at Greenwood in Brooklyn, and I just wrote a book called Grave for Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series, where every book is a really concise look at a specific object. Uh, It's a really beautiful series they do. And grave is about the American grave, basically its past, present and future and kind of taking a, like a ground level look at how we care for the dead. And yeah, not, not a lot to do with, uh, agriculture, urban nature in there, but it is interesting, um, you know, with green burial and even now like human composting, like there is a real interest in making the burial ground more of a natural place than it has been that kind of like very manicured, um, you know, golf lawn look. So yeah, it just came out, uh, February 9th and I'm excited. If you're into cemeteries, I will be doing walks and talks and all that in the coming months?
1: Yeah, um, I definitely notice like Greenwood Cemetery is one of my favorite places to go in the city. And I have noticed how, how much they've changed their, um, just their landscape, how there's so many more tall grasses and perennials in there. And, um, I know so many birders who go there and I've, I've checked out a lot of the birds and it's just so incredible how much they're starting to change the environment and how there's bees there now, like, like there's actual beehives. So how it's becoming. And also like during quarantine, so many people started going there and I was like, Oh no, don't ruin it. But, but, um, but now they've cleared out again, which is but but um but how it it is this resting place, but and maybe this is sacrilegious, but I, I I always think of it almost as a park as this beautiful, quiet, like rolling hills park that there are also a lot of people, you know who are there
5: it was I mean we could do a follow-up hour on the rural cemetery movement, but it was designed like greenwood. Laurel Hill in Philadelphia, Mount Auburn in Boston, all these 19th century cemeteries were like Mount Auburn in Boston was actually started by the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, like, at, cause they wanted to open an experimental garden, but they didn't really have the money. And they're like, well, what if we put some graves there and people bought the graves and then we get the garden. And then, you know, people were much more excited about the idea of the beautiful, cemetery that inspired places like Greenwood than they were about experimental gardens, unfortunately. (laughs) But yeah, it is, they were a hundred percent designed to be park-like spaces and then definitely informed, you know, Central Park and places like that.
3: Yeah. And so there, I mean, it's nothing, none of this stuff is um, disconnected. And I think that's one of the main takeaways from the work of NYC Microseasons as a project is that it's, you couldn't remove um, these externalities from urban life, whether it's urban dwelling, because you ultimately do go outside, and then, bam, there's ginkgos, and there's possums, and there's all kinds of things like that, um, smog. Uh, and uh, with food, obviously, not just if you're foraging, which probably fewer people do, at least in, in a big city— um, but but yeah, in, in general, where are productive regimes? Where are different things uh, growing? And then other things are eating those. And it may not be directly related to your experience of food, but it's sort of happening all around you. So it's interesting that, to think about, yeah, that linked history in terms of landscape design of of where people are, you know, laying to rest and, and families come and visit. Um, but that's also a green space, right? It is a park. And thus, it's a kind of nature reserve. So you have sort of all of these activities just mixed up. And you can trace those those different sort of stories and find the the best weirdest stuff that the New York times spent, you know, a couple <laughs> paragraphs on hundred years ago. Um, uh, awesome. Well, I, I think we should let you go, but I really appreciate um, chatting with you um, so much about your work and look forward to reading more of it in whatever format, you know, you and Aaron decide for uh, micro seasons and, and more. Um, and yeah, if you want, um, I guess, uh, is there anything you're particularly interested in uh, eating soon? What's your, what's your like favorite celebration food?
5: I just, I just picked up, I used this, um, this place called Local Roots that does like a produce. Um, it's not quite a farm share, but I just picked that up today and they had a really interesting orange squash. I would, I'm not sure what it is. It was one I hadn't seen before. So I was like, oh, fun. You know, deep in winter, the farm shares get really boring with squash and potatoes. So I was like, weirdly excited to see a new type of squash. So, uh, I'm in the, you know, the depths of February produce where when you see a burst of color, it's very exciting.
1: Oh, that's great. I know um Wen-jae who who runs oh, yeah. uh local roots. Um so that's so great to hear that, you know, um what they're offering is very exciting, especially sometimes in the dull drums of, of winter.
5: I'm not much of like um a cook, but they're always really good at giving you things that are like it's already a good, you know, thing of like these are already, already nice radishes, so you can just like eat them, <laughs> which is good for someone like me who is unambitious with uh, cooking their food. But yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that very colorful squash that I got uh, in what is usually, you know, the cold, dark depths of winter.
1: Yeah, I actually did want to ask that quick question. Like, I'm wondering if this is material um for micro seasons as well and if there's gonna be a new micro season of like spring and winter. <laughs>
5: like yeah. like
1: the, the new non-snowing uh kind of springtime winter, even though we're winter and everything's dormant, but it's 60 degrees.
5: Yeah, because I think we still have because we did write some ahead of time that had to do with like snow and ice. And we have yet to be able to use those because it's been just so mild. And I think we did write one about like false spring where it's, you know, everyone in April thinks it's spring and then it gets really cold and rainy again. But this is definitely like a different, um, I, like a, like pre spring, like I saw the crocuses are already bro- blooming at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which I think is a month earlier than last year. And it's a little, spooky because it's like oh it's such a nice day but then you're like what it's february this uh, is troubling and as someone who likes snow i also am like a little bit sad not to get a nice blizzard but yeah we will we are going to have to amend our seasons perhaps each year as as new york becomes you know more tropical and and things change. But I think that, like, that's what makes it interesting, too, is like you think when you imagine what the seasons are, like we did, we're like, well, we're going to need at least three or four about all the snow everywhere. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I guess that's uh, it's not happening this year. So,
1: yeah, but maybe it's it's also the perfect thing of micro seasons because of now how all the seasons are changing because of climate change. So it's like the perfect time to talk about micro seasons.
5: Totally.
3: Yeah, or that, that's related to, like, feelings of sadage, right? Nostalgia for what isn't. So, sort of, like, um, and it's related to real nostalgia if you grew up with snow um, or experienced it at some point. I guess I didn't really grow up with snow. I grew up in Atlanta. But, you know, having experienced snow at other points in life, like, it'll increasingly be, like, a, you're expecting it and then it never comes. And it's, like, that's its own kind of um, time, you know, affective time when when you, you're expecting X and it doesn't arrive. And, and you know, that could be said of, of food, too, as different foods become more or less common and... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of that kind of um work is 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 there to document, but I feel like not a lot of people see the world that way. So again, it's it's really nice to to have a place to kind of aggregate some of those thoughts about, you know, temporality and, and yeah, to Melissa's point, in a very rapidly changing world. Uh oh, um,
5: yeah, I like that Melissa. There are no seasons, only micro seasons now.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh with that, I guess on, on that um ambiguously cheery or sort of doom tinged <laughs> note. Uh, you know, we'll have to have you back on and talk about seasons um, in inside greenhouses and, and whatnot in the future. Um, snowy covered turnips, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. And um, I hope folks would subscribe to New York City Micro Seasons. And, you know, we always love to take suggestions from other people for seasons. We've had some really um, great ones that we've taken on. And I I love that. I mean, it, like our well run does run dry sometimes. so you know, please email us with your suggestions.
3: Yeah, everyone should check out NYC Micro Seasons and uh, Grave from the Object Lessons series. Uh, and whatever else Allison and Aaron are up to, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, everybody, happy planting. Fields is powered by Riverside.